Well, today we're going to continue our series on the book of Hebrews called Jesus is Better. And uh, so far in our series, we've seen that Jesus is a better messenger than the angels and that Jesus is a better leader than Abraham, Moses, Joshua, or any other hero of the faith. And this morning, we're going to uh, be in Hebrews chapter 5. So if you could turn there in your Bibles, we'll be in Hebrews 5 through 7. And uh, that's where we're going to dive deep into. What you're going to notice is, uh, or something you might not know, rather, is that the chapter and verse divisions in the Bible, like, you know, Hebrews chapter 5, verse 11, those weren't added to the Bible until 1,400 years after the Bible was complete as a way to navigate the Scripture and help us find those different verses and follow along with it. Previously, all these letters in the Bible were a continuous letter, and they weren't divided up into chapters. And overall, this is a useful thing, uh, but in some cases, it splits up the ideas unnecessarily. And you're going to see that in Hebrews chapter 4, 14 uh, through chapter 5. So we're actually going to, if you look up just a little bit, a couple verses, you're going to see uh, Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14, and that's actually where we're going to start, but we're going to read all the way through chapter 5, verse 1, because it really is a continuous idea throughout this whole thing. So let's uh, check that out in verse 14. It says, Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace in help in the time of need. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God to offer gifts and sacrifices for sin. So this idea... Uh, would have been revolutionary for these Jewish Christians. Priests were the top of the food chain. They deserved respect and honor. And the high priest was the supreme religious leader of the Israelites. And the office of the high priest was a hereditary office traced from Aaron, the brother of Moses, all the way through, uh, the, through the tribe of Levite. The high priest had to be whole physically and without physical defects, and he had to be holy in his conduct. And because the high priest held the leadership position, one of his roles was overseeing all of the other subordinate priests. Only the high priest could wear the Urim and the Thummim, which is engraved like stones to determine the truth or falsity of any subject through God's power. And for this reason, the Hebrew people would go to the high priest in order to know the will of God. The high priest had to offer a sin offering, not only for the sins of the whole congregation, but for himself as well. And the most important duty of the high priest was to conduct the service on the day of atonement, on the 10th day of the seventh month of every year. Only he was allowed to enter the most holy place in the temple, behind the veil, to stand before God. Having made a sacrifice for the people and uh, himself as well, he then brought the blood to the Holy of Holies and sprinkled it on the mercy, seats or, uh, the mercy seat, or in other words, God's throne. 
And he did this to make a symbolic atonement for himself and for the people, for all their sins that they had committed over that year that had just ended. And this whole process was an act of faith and a foreshadowing of the sacrifice that Jesus would one day make in our place. Except for Jesus is an even better high priest. See, the role of the high priest was to represent Israel before God and offer sacrifices to atone for the people's sin. However, the priests themselves were morally flawed and they had constantly had to offer uh, sacrifices for their own sins as well. Something more was needed. Something like the ultimate high priest. Uh, that verse there we just read says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. This verse paints a picture of this possibility that a high priest could be separated from the people, not understanding what the culture was going through. But th this verse says Jesus is not that high priest who is out of touch with life and is who not walking among the culture. But Jesus personally knows what it is like to face sin except for he did not succumb to temptation. And because of this, we have a better high priest that we can come to with confidence, knowing our high priest doesn't have to make sacrifices for his own sin because he paid the ultimate sacrifice with his life in our place. Now we no longer have to go through a human priest, but we ourselves can go boldly to the throne of God and speak directly to our Heavenly Father and ask Him personally to show us His will. I think we're uh, 2,000 years after Jesus. We're very much uh, disconnected with this idea that we might have to go to someone to get to God. And now we no longer have to do that. We can approach God with confidence whenever we need mercy and grace and forgiveness. Let's look at uh, chapter 5, verse 1 through 6. For every high priest is chosen from among men and is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sin. He can deal gently with the ignorant and the wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. And because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifices for his own sin, just as he does for those of the people. And no one takes this honor for himself, but only when, God, uh, when called by God, just as Aaron was. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, You are my son, today I have begotten you. And as he also uh, says in another place, You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Jesus is a better priest than Aaron and his descendants. In fact, here it says that Jesus is a priest after the order of Melchizedek and not after the order of Aaron. Tim Mackey says that we don't know a lot about Melchizedek, that he's only mentioned a few times in the Old Testament, but we know that he is this mysterious priest king in ancient Jerusalem who briefly appears in stories and uh, with Abraham in Genesis 14. And Abraham honored Melchizedek uh, by tithing to him. In Psalms 110, it uh, says that the Messianic king would be from the line of David, but would also be a priest after the order of Melchizedek. And here's the, the point, is that Jesus is the ultimate priest king. 
He is morally flawless and eternally available for all of his people. And he's simply superior to any earthly mediator between God and man. And with this in mind, the author warns us that to reject Jesus is to reject one's only chance to be reconciled to God. Jesus is the ultimate high priest. His priesthood is forever. And it can, be never, uh, it can never be pr- uh, pr- improved upon. Hebrews chapter 5, verse 9 says, and this is awesome, it says, being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Being designated by God, a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Jesus is the source of of our salvation, the only source. There is only one path to God, and his name is Jesus. Jesus is the source of salvation, just like a spring is the source of a stream. It flows from him. You can't have God without Jesus. The author takes a sidebar here for a moment, and he really starts to step on our toes here in a second. And if uh, you think I'm being mean, blame the Bible, because it's, it's, uh, it's the Bible here that's talking about it, here in Hebrews. But he talks about how uh, Jesus is a better high priest. But then he begins to talk about how uh, obedience and growing mature in the faith is so important. In verse 11 of chapter 5, he says, about this we have much to say. He said, I'd love to tell you a lot more about how Jesus is a high priest, about who Melchizedek was, and about how Jesus is a better messenger, how Jesus is a better leader. About this, we have much to say, and it is hard to explain, since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. And that word oracles means principles of God. You need milk, not solid food. Basically, what he's saying here is you're a baby. You're a spiritual baby. I'd love to give you a nice juicy steak of God's word, but I can't because you're stuck. You're stunted in your growth. Verse 13 says, For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature. For those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Do you ever remember when you were growing up, uh, either your parents told you this or maybe you've told your children this, I'll tell you when you're older. I'll tell you when you're older. What does that mean? It means you're too immature. You can't handle it right now. I've got some things that you could probably benefit from knowing, but you are not there yet. The author says, there's so much more that I want to teach you about this, but you haven't been listening. You are dull of hearing. They had been followers of Christ for a while, but they haven't been maturing in the faith like they should be. And he says, you have been followers for Christ long enough that now, at this point, you should be teachers of the word, not just students. It's like, uh, you know, often on uh, TV, you'll see there's a this depiction of a high school, and there's this guy, and if this is you, I apologize, I'm not making fun of you, but there's this guy that's been in 11th grade for like 10 years, right? And he says here, 
that at this point you could be a teacher by now, but you're not a teacher, you're just a student. You ought to be investing in someone else's life by now. And this fights against the consumer Christianity that we uh, often uh, lean into that says church is all about me, entertain me, please me, keep me happy. And if you don't do the things the way that I want you to do, then I'm upset because I am a consumer, not a producer. But see, the proof of your maturity in Christ as a follower of Christ is not about how much you know, but it's about how much you teach. We have people in this room that you should be able to lead a life group by now, but you're dull of hearing. You're not there yet. You're still content to just partake of the milk, and you can't handle the meat of the word yet. And this would be very evident if I started to uh, call on a new person to pray in every service and every Sunday. There'd be a few people that would step up at first, right? First couple weeks. But even then, there'd be a little bit of awkwardness and silence and crickets. About 10 Sundays in, we'd probably get through our life group leaders and some of our bold students, and then we'd have a room full of people trying to avoid eye contact with me. (laughs) But look, if you've been saved, if you have been saved, you ought to be able to pray in public. It's not a show. You don't need a degree. You're just talking to your Father in heaven. You don't need flowery sayings, or you don't need to impress anyone. It's all about your heavenly Father. Just be sincere. See, many of us are happy to just be consumers. I'm not a participant. I'm just a spectator. I'm not one of those people that like, actually jumps in and does things. That's not my thing. I'm the one that sits back and I, I just watch the show. We need some people that will step up. And maybe saying, I'm not there yet but I want to be a life group leader one day. I feel like God wants me to do it. I'm not there yet where I could uh, help with the children's ministry, but I'd love to be mentored. I'm going to work towards that. We'd love to get you hooked up with people that could uh, walk you along that process and train you how to take that next step. Let's not be spectators. Let's be participants. But often we're content to just stay in the shallow end. And I'm praying as your pastor that more of us would become burdened by our lack of growth and run toward Jesus because Jesus is better. And it's a privilege and an honor to be able to stand and be used by God. Many of us are too uh, chained by our guilt even though Jesus died for our sins and forgave us and now sees us as innocent. We keep bringing up our own sin as reasons why we can't do things. Hebrews chapter 11, excuse me, chapter 7, verse 11. He jumps back in talking about this Old Testament Levitical priesthood. He said, now if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek, rather than one named after the order of Aaron. It was a hard thing for these people, these Jewish Christians, to leave behind thousands of years of tradition and culture. It was their identity. It was who they were. But the author says that if the old way was perfect and if it redeemed you once and for all, then we wouldn't have a need for a new law of the gospel and the ultimate priest king, Jesus. Verse 18 
says, for on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness, for the law made nothing perfect. It actually, the law only showed us that we were imperfect and there was no hope in and of ourselves. That's the theme of the Old Testament, is that you can't do it on your own, no matter if you have a king, no matter if you have a judge, no matter if you have a prophet, no matter if you have a priest, without Jesus, you can't get to God. And it goes on to says, but on the other hand, this is awesome, a better hope is introduced, though which we draw near to God. See, Jesus brought more than just a new covenant. It was a better covenant that promised hope for all to be near to God. Verse 22 says, this makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. I don't know about you, but whenever someone guarantees me something, I always get real skeptical, right? Why do you have to go that far? I guarantee. It brings up images of used car dealers and door-to-door charlatans, right? I guarantee this is going to be the best thing you've ever had. I worked selling tires for years at Sears and a a Napa uh, certified mechanic. And one thing that I learned is that the mileage guarantees on those tires had very little to do with the actual quality of the tire. And what they would do many times, the lower quality tires, they would put a longer warranty on banking on the fact that you're going to forget your paperwork or maybe even forget where you bought those tires. But here it says Jesus is the guarantor of a better covenant. And you can be sure of this guarantee. You can trust this guarantee. That uh, word there in the Greek guarantor is only mentioned one time in the Bible. And that's right here. And it means a pledge or an oath. And God has sworn not to change his mind about the gospel. This is what Charles Spurgeon says about God's guarantee. He says this oath was for the honor of his dear son as he assumed the sacred priesthood on behalf of the sons of men. The glory of his character, the dignity of his work, the certainty of his accomplishment, and the supreme excellence of his motive in entering upon it all, all lift up the priesthood of Christ out of the category of all human priesthoods. Therefore, the eternal Father signalizes it by a special mark of distinction and himself makes an oath that his only begotten son is a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. An oath for confirmation among men is the end of all strife. When an honest man is sworn to it, the testimony stands in evidence and may, uh, may not be questioned. But when God not only gives his promise and his word, but swears to his declaration, who shall dare to doubt? It's not often you get a guarantee from God, the God that made the universe. But you can be sure that it can be trusted. You can trust the gospel. Verse 28 says, For the law appoints men in their weaknesses as high priests. But the word of the oath, this promise of the gospel, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. What am I saying? I'm saying Jesus is a better high priest. Sometimes we think about the Old Testament and we're like, man, I wish I was at the Red Sea parting. I wish I could have seen David fight Goliath. Man, I wish I could have seen those 
plagues and the miracles and being led by fire. You don't understand. This is better than all those things. What you have now is far better. In the Old Testament, God would have seemed distant and God would have seemed far away. Can you imagine the disappointment and if you had to go through me to get to God? I'm disappointed. <laughs> That's not how it is. You, every single person in the room, when you pray, when you read God's word, you have the opportunity to communicate with the God that knows everything about you and still loves you. The God that knows all your thoughts, all your wicked deeds. No one else would love you the way that God loves you, knowing what he knows about you. You've heard people say that's a face only a mother could love. Imagine the ugliness inside of us. We are beings that only our maker could love. And he does. And that is why he deserves your obedience. And that is why he deserves your praise and your worship and all of you, your surrender. That's why he deserves your life and everything that you can give. Because despite who you are, he still loves you. Jesus is this great high priest that gives us this opportunity to get to God. See, sometimes when we read the Bible and about these heroes of the faith, we can be tempted to lift them up as supernatural themselves. But the Bible is very intentional about showing all of uh, their flaws as well. No one is a greater example of this than David, right? He is a man after God's own heart that also has adultery and murders that husband. And, you know, Noah got drunk, and there's this old list. Whenever God lifts somebody up as a leader in the Bible, he's sure to show those flaws. And that's also how you know that this wasn't these guys that were doing it on their own. If I was Noah, I would not tell you about how I got drunk or about how I committed adultery or about how I had, uh, you know, who I was before I got saved if I was Paul, a persecutor of the Christians. We lift these heroes up like they're supernatural. But they have flaws too. Or sometimes we can be even tempted to see ourselves in those heroes. And we say things like, I want to dare to be a Daniel. Or I want to stand up before the giants in my life like David did. I want to be a leader like Gideon or Esther. But that's not the point of the Bible either. We're not the lead character. Jesus is. Jesus is the hero. And the point of the Bible is not just to make us better people. That's called moralism. And it's not the gospel. The point of the Bible is that Jesus is better and that we are sinners, lost without hope. And Jesus rescued us from danger. And he stood up before the giants of sin. And he led when no one else would. And that we can't change ourselves. The point of the whole Old Testament is to show us that we were desperate sinners in need of a Savior with no hope without Jesus, no matter how good you are. 
and that we could not live up to the law on our own and that we needed help. We see the examples that the kings turned their backs on God and the judges helped, but they still couldn't get people to do other than what was right in their own eyes. And the prophets, they spoke the words of God, but the people killed them. And the priests took advantage of their position and their power and they turned their hearts toward themselves. And over and over and over again, whenever someone was lifted up in leadership, they failed. And the theme of the Old Testament is that mankind couldn't do it. And we desperately needed a Savior. And Jesus is our Savior, our only hope. He is a better prophet, a better priest, and a better king. Jesus is the answer. And Jesus is a better priest. He is sinless. He offered himself as a sacrifice once and for all. Covering sins for all of eternity. The work is complete and we can now go boldly to God because Jesus is better. Stop holding on to the shadows of religion when we have the light of the world. Are you dull of hearing today? Are you spiritually stunted in your growth? Is God saying to you this morning, by this time, you ought to be teachers. You need someone to teach you again the basic principles of God. But you still need milk and not solid food. See, the measure of a mature Christian is how much, it's not how much you know, but it's how much you teach. And that's called discipleship. And maybe you're not there yet. But what is your plan to get there? How are you going to mature and progress? Jesus is the source and the guarantor of our salvation. If you don't know him today, you must admit your need for a savior, that you can't rescue yourself, and you must put your trust in Jesus today. You can't take parts of the Bible and miss Jesus. Jesus is better. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes. The band comes. Let's take a moment to let God's word sink into our hearts. I don't know about you, but often I can become apathetic and complacent about what we have in Christ. What a sin and a shame that is. Someone once said that the gospel is not the diving board into Christianity, it is the pool. It's not about that the, the gospel is just this initiation, this, uh, you know, you getting saved and accepting Christ. It's not this initiation that starts off your Christian walk. It is the Christian walk. Constantly reminding yourself, just like you were at that moment, salvation, that you were a sinner in need of a savior. And just like I can't save myself, I can't sanctify myself. I need a savior 
a rescuer every single day because my tendency is for, to put, uh, for me to put myself on the throne and to put Jesus to the side. The only way to live in the gospel is to continually put Jesus in the driver's seat and put yourself in the trunk. We must rely on Jesus because Jesus is better. Maybe those harsh words from the writer of Hebrews about whether or not at this point you ought to be a teacher, someone that shares their faith, someone that is discipling someone. You don't have to have the title of a teacher, but you have to be someone that is passing on your faith. And if you're not doing that, the Bible says you're not mature. You're like a child. That's harsh. But it's the truth. We haven't had to work out our faith and stretch it. We're still stuck in the infant stages of salvation. What do you have to do to get from where you are to where God wants you to be? I'll give you a hint. It's relying on Jesus, putting him on the throne, fellowshipping with him and pouring out your heart in prayer, seeking his face, being willing to stand up and say, I'll do it, even though you're not confident that you can do it. That's great. You can't do anything on our own. Not worth anything. When was the last time you stretched your faith enough that you were scared about what you were going to do? So scared that you decided that I have to rely on Christ because I can't do this on my own. With every head bowed and eyes closed, altars open this morning as we pray. This is a time... Not to think about lunch or what's going on later. We've got to have prayer as part of who we are as a church. Let's take, take some time. Ask God where he wants us to change. 